text we'll be looking at is printed in your bolts, and it was, uh, and it is an interesting one. I'm not going to uh, try to spin that in any different way. Kyle read it uh, this week, and initially he said, "Where's the parable?" If you've been with us, you know uh, that we've been looking at stories that Jesus told uh, his people, his disciples, stories that he gave us uh, that really speak at, look at, talk about, and think about what his kingdom looks like. And there's a lot of preliminary stuff that has to be covered before we actually get to the parable uh, in Mark chapter 13. Otherwise, the parable means uh, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. until we. So we're going to have to do some background work, a considerable amount of background work before we get there. Uh, many people would try to avoid this passage because it is not only famous, but actually it's confusing. And I have to tell you that I realize, even as we begin to look at this, um, that it is difficult to understand and there is much disagreement and there is a high likelihood that I will not solve uh, those difficulties this morning. There is a resistance that you find because people expect this passage to say something uh, that it doesn't, actually. Instead of letting the Old Testament be our God as we look at passages like this, uh, We've taken a different approach. And this morning we're going to do a really a giant overview of Mark chapter 13. Look with me as I read uh, this passage this morning. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. You see all these great buildings, Jesus replied. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch, that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in their synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Wherever you're arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand what, about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Let those who in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down and enter a house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in the winter. Because those will be the days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs, false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the heaven and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great glory and power. 
And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer's near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. About that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on your guard, be alert. Do you not know that when the time will come? You do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. <laughs> let's, let's pray together. Uh, Father, we pray now that you'd be with us as we look into this story that your son gave us. Um, confusing, and we really struggle to find how this have any meaning for us in this life and in this world, and yet we pray uh, that your spirit would guide us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In AD 79, Mount Vesuvius erupted and destroyed the city of Pompeii. Uh, the people of the city were uh, buried, really, beneath the ruins. Uh, as we excavated that city, what we found is some took shelter underground, others uh, took shelter outside, and yet all of these places became their burial chamber. Because no matter where one went in that city, whether it was the high place or underground, uh, they were unable to escape the destruction that came. It is interesting that they found one Roman sentinel who was found at the city gate. And when they found him, he's still clasping his weapon. What's telling about that is that is the exact location that he had been placed by his captain. You can just imagine while the earth shook beneath him, and while there's a flood of ash and cinders that overwhelmed him, he stood his post. And that's where we found him thousands of years later, standing in the exact location, doing exactly what he was commanded to do. This passage is really about that sort of activity. In no less than just a few spans here, Jesus says seven times in this passage, calls us to watch. Now, why would he do that? And why is that so crucial that not only he says it once, but he repeats it over seven times in this one little passage? Just the framing of what happens here, and it happens in verses 1 and 4, and it's important. Because that frames everything else that comes after it. If you miss the questions that are being asked, you really miss what Jesus is answering here specifically. Jesus answers who and how, but not when. In, in this section. I want you to get the picture. The temple was an incredible structure in the ancient Near East. It was an ancient marvel is the best way to describe it. And they approached Jesus, and basically their question is this. Look at this temple. Isn't it wonderful? And Jesus' response to their admiration is simply this. Yes, and it's going to be completely destroyed. And so they follow that up with their question, when will this happen? 
because they had assumed that this idea that the fall of Jerusalem would be sort of the introduction to the consummation, that everything after that would actually be wonderful and beautiful. Jews would be restored to power. Rome would be crushed. And that question roughly divides everything up to verse 32, which is where the parable occurs. Because verses 5 through 31 here is all about the destruction of the temple. And verses 32 through 37 at the very end is only about the consummation. When the time of justice and peace will actually flourish. Verse 30 gives us kind of a definitive time reference for time stamp for everything that Jesus is talking about. I tell you truly, this generation will not pass away until all these things happen. A generation in Jesus' day meant the people that were alive, the people he were actually talking to. If that's true, and if I'm right in that, almost everything in chapter 13 has already been fulfilled. So what gets in the way of what Jesus is talking about? Well, it begins actually in verse 5. And the way I would sort of phrase this is this. This world gets in the way. The assumption here is that if the destruction of the temple will be caused by a great catastrophe, and in their culture there were all kind of rumors about that, and there would be, the news that the temple was being destroyed would cause them to absolutely panic because their entire world was built around this structure. And what Jesus says that all these things are, are not signs. What do I mean by that? They provide no real indication of God's timetable. There's no indication that the destruction of the temple is impending. What he calls his disciples to is patience, not panic. This is sort of the life in between, the normal life that you would normally expect history continuing to take its course. And their world, and this is deeply personal, because if you are at least listening at all to what he's saying here, there's going to be persecution unlike anything they've ever known. And there's also going to be proclamation like anything they've ever known. Look at verse 10 again. People are actually thrown out of kilter about this. The gospel must be preached to all the nations is what Jesus says. The temple will not be destroyed until this gospel has actually gone out. Now, some would argue that this has never happened before, and this is really about Jesus' return. But Paul wrote, in the mid-50s, he could say the gospel has been fully preached from Jerusalem to Icarium. And even in Colossians, he says that it has been preached to every creature under heaven, and it was bearing fruit all over the world. For Paul... And for the New Testament, the idea of the world means the civilized or known world to them. Tim Allen said this, how much of your day are you awake? You think I've got to get the dry cleaning, I've got to get going, I've got to get this and that. And all of a sudden it's dinner time. And then there's a moment of connection with your spouse or your friends. Then you're ready, you read, and you go to bed. The next day you wake up and it's the same thing all over. You're not really awake, you're not living, you're not really experiencing he goes on to describe this this way. We start medicating ourselves early. We start the kids early on TV, video games, and so forth. It's dawning how many possibilities there are for life and for every one of us. But rather than the face of the fact that I may be a failure or I may be a success, which he says both of them are actually terrifying, we find diversions. I want you to see what Jesus describes here is just normal life. 
they're not signs. Actually, these are non-signs is the best way to describe them. Those who tell you this morning that they know what these signs are, and they know they have a good idea when Jesus is coming back, uh, they don't is the best answer I can give. Those who spend or waste their time calculating is truly just that, a waste of time. Because the way he describes it, these are all non-signs. It's just the way life is. And then in verse 14, you get sort of a mood change. Uh, Something happens that sort of tells you that time is running, and it couldn't be the second coming. Why would I say that? What would be the use in running is the way he describes it. And why would it be more difficult for women, even pregnant women, if Jesus returns? And why would a believer want to flee to the mountains? What Jesus is describing here is the Roman siege of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Titus leveled Jerusalem is the only description to give. To show you how, or to at least describe you how bad it really was, during the siege it is said that women ate their children. Romans, the Romans carried insignias, eagles in silver and bronze, over an imperial bust into the city. They sacrificed these to these signs in the temple. This was a profound abomination to the Jewish people. And with these signs, they brought complete desolation to the city. It's a distraction that Jesus is describing. But he also describes the need for watching. And these are all, this is just background to get to the uh, actual story. Why do I say that? Titus had entered Jerusalem, burned the temple, destroyed the city uh, in 70 A.D. All of it came to nothing. The climax of everything that Titus did was destruction of that temple and everything that it represented. What this passage describes is something earth-shattering. To us it means almost nothing. To them it meant the end of their world. Everything about their life, everything about their culture... Everything, about, everything that they knew about life suddenly ended. You couldn't imagine a larger opposition to the gospel than the temple. It was overwhelming. Physically, it was overwhelming. Even in the story, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, and they can actually see the temple mount. They can see the temple and the roof, which historians tell us was blinding, could be seen for miles and miles from around the city. It was decorated with pure gold and marble, dazzling, the most imposing structure in the ancient Near East for hundreds of miles. It was a way of life for them, a symbol of life. It was injustice to those inside and violence to those outside. The temple represented everything that the gospel opposed. Everything that the temple was supposed to be about, God did through Jesus Salvation for all. Everything that the temple should have been, and it's shocking that he uses this kind of language because he basically imports everything from the Old Testament and applies it right here. Everything that the Jews had been using for centuries against the Gentiles, Jesus turns it around in this little passage. This vision that he gives comes from Daniel, and it's a vision of enthronement. Here God is setting up a new kingship to replace the fallen one. And it's not in earth, but it's actually in heaven where all people, languages, and nations would bow. This is a new phase, a new interaction between God and His people. 
G.K. Chesterton said this, five times the church has gone to the dogs, and each time it was the dogs that died. This is a great description of what he's actually describing in this passage. N.T. Wright phrased it this way, all power structures, ancient or modern, whether political, economic, or racial, had the potential to become rivals to Christ, beckoning his followers to submit to them in order to find a greater security. The, the invitation is blasphemous and it's unnecessary. Christ brooks no rivals. His people need no one but him. And that's exactly what he's describing here in this passage. N.T. Wright went further and said this, Let there be no mistake to proclaim the lordship of Jesus in this world can never be a matter of merely inviting people to embrace a personal salvation that leaves the power structures alone. If it's reduced to that, then the name of the whole New Testament, we must say that Jesus of whom the New Testament talks about is not the same one that's described uh, in the Bible. Instead, it's a distortion of who he is in his message. This is an incredible description. Okay, so exactly what does that mean and how does that bring us to actually verses 32? Because this is where the parable actually is seen. Because in 32, there is a noticeable change in language here. In the New Testament, you'll notice the writer said this, but about that day, or actually Jesus said this, but about that day. That has a special meaning in the New Testament. It's kind of like when we use the word Super Bowl. No one thinks that when I use the word Super Bowl that it's an exceptionally large or beautiful bowl. When Jesus says that day, they understood, they knew that this was a loaded term. It meant the last day, the very end day, the day that they originally questioned about. And what he calls them to is a vigilance, to be awake. It's the true answer, actually, to one of the disciples' questions. But nobody can stay awake all the time, so what does this mean? Well, what it doesn't mean and what it can't mean is this, some wild speculation or calculation. It's also not observation, and I would go even further and say it's certainly not withdrawal. The parable that's given here in 33, you don't know when the time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house, puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. The parable drives home the idea that no one actually knows when this will occur. It's a waste of time and energy to dwell on it. The very idea of night even demonstrates this idea. It's easy to miss. It's easy to be asleep during that time. There's a quote in the front of your bulletin from Martin Luther that really gets at this, where he says, what would you do if you knew Christ was coming back tomorrow? And Luther's response was this, I'd plant a tree. What Jesus is really calling us to here is this faithful idea of faithful service. The idea that I'm never off duty. How can I remain watchful and at the same time work out just ordinary life and the stuff that comes my way? And that's exactly the question that he's answering. Each must work at their assigned task. Now, what would that be? Well, if Mark is any indicator, and if we look at the Gospel of Mark, what we find is this, welcoming little ones, praying for the nations, loving God and neighbors, giving our all. That's really what it means at the very heart of it all, to be ready. It means serving our king and serving one another. Each member has his work, a task, that he's called to perform. 
And he labors it, they have to complete it, because they're watching is the way he describes it. And this service is in a world of pain where the pain of the world and the purposes of God run crossways to one another. If you're a Christian this morning, really the question is, number one, are you serving and are you watching? Because these things go hand in hand with one another. Are you ready? Might be another description. During World War II, Britain was experiencing some of its darkest days. The country had a very difficult time keeping men in their coal mines because the men wanted to give up their dirty, thankless jobs in the dangerous mines to join military service, um, which garnered much praise and support from the public. Yet their minds were critical to the work of the war and actually to the war effort. Without coal, the military and the people at home would be in deep trouble. So Winston Churchill faced thousands of coal miners one day, and he told them, tried to convince them of their importance to the war effort and how their role could actually make or break the goal of England's freedom. He painted a picture of what it would be like when the war ended. The grand parade that would honor the people who fought the war, he said first would come the people in the Navy, uh, the people who continued sort of the defeat that they had seen of the Spanish Armada. He said next would be the best and brightest of Britain, the pilots of the Royal Air Force, who fended off the Germans. Following them would be the soldiers who fought at Dunkirk. And he said last of all, there would be the dust-covered men in their miners' caps. Churchill indicated that someone from the crowd might say, where were they during the critical days of the struggle? And the voices of thousands of men would respond, we were in the earth with our faces to the cold. It is said that tears appeared in the eyes of the men that were listening. And they returned to their inglorious work with absolute resolve. And they maintained and stayed there playing their country's noblest goal, pursuing freedom for the Western world. That's a great description of what Jesus is calling us to as his church and as his people to laboring sometimes many times most of the time completely unseen and yet laboring for our king knowing that one day there would be a grand parade let's pray together father we thank you for your great love and mercy that you call on us as your people to gather in this place but around a central need and theme, and that is to serve you. For many of us, we've given up on the idea of serving you. Instead, we have sought other things, and yet you call on us to come back to be watchful, to be diligent, to persevere, and to be patient. For we do not know, as your people had never known down through the ages, when we might see you again. So we come and lift our hearts before you, praying with us, in the name of Jesus, we come. Amen.